Welcome, everybody. This is episode seven of the Montrepreneur podcast, hosted by yours truly, Herdash Mata. This show features conversations with entrepreneurs, creatives, and other professionals sharing how they built up their career. Each guest on the podcast will share a mantra that they live by, which motivates or inspires them in their endeavors, hence the name, Montrepreneur. I'd like to introduce today's guest, Shantae Harris. Shantae is a vice president at Capilino and Company, where she leads startup and established businesses with securing procurement opportunities, launching pilot programs, undertaking design challenges, and launching community impact programming. She's also on the board of directors of the Coda Alliance, a nonprofit with a mission of building an incubator and co-working space in New York for organizations, social enterprises, and women-owned businesses to improve and empower women's lives. Welcome, Shantae. Thanks for taking some time out to talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast today. Awesome. So I know when we got introduced, you were at American University where you got your bachelor's in communications, legal institutions, economics, and government with a minor in Spanish. That's that's a mouthful. So that's cool. Coming out of AU, did you always know you wanted to do something in public service? Yeah, I think for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with civic engagement, uh, public uh, engagement, and sort of how people think about what it means to interact with government and policy, uh, things that really affect their everyday lives. So I definitely went to D.C. and American with the focus of, I think, learning more about how our national policy and political discussion, you know, at a high level implements things that happen at a state and local level. So it was something that I, I honestly have thought about, I think, most of my life, having had a grandmother who has very strong opinions and isn't afraid to share them and also did a lot of amazing work and still does. I mean, I don't, she won't tell me her actual age at this point, but, you know, well into her 80s, she's still getting folks to register, to vote, planning rallies. And I think having had a figure like that in my life at such a young age, who basically told me if I didn't like something, I could change it. If I had an opinion about something, I should share it. I really think those hearing that growing up instilled in me the idea that, you know, I could, I could genuinely have an impact on policy, on how things get decided and, and what it means to be a civically engaged citizen. So DC definitely gave me the opportunity to do that. Being at American University gave me the opportunity to do that. And so I knew that public service, civic engagement, policy were all of those, all of those things were key to, you know, what I wanted to be doing in my lifetime. And that's great that you had that upbringing because I feel like in today's day and age, a lot of people have a sort of helplessness where they're like, oh, well, XYZ is happening in the world, but what am I supposed to do about it when there's so many movements happening where there was like the women's march, there's been so many things where people come together and try to make a difference. So a lot of people just sit around and watch it happen, but you're actually going out and implementing, which is really powerful. So I know when you were at American, you actually got the Her Campus Woman of the Year Award and also received the Harold Johnson Award, which is something American University gives out. So what led you to receiving those recognitions? I think they're both based on public service to some degree. Yeah, they are. You know, in a lot of ways, both of those awards were surprises to me. I uh, was never, (laughs) to be completely transparent, the type to say I'm going to, you know, be in student government and run for president. I think the actual actions of the political process always turned me off. 
I didn't realize that until I got to American and was studying political science and realized how many people were so obsessed with the actual people in office and the process. And I was more interested in talking about the issues and the solutions. And so I took a few classes in political science and basically said, this isn't quite what I thought it would be. And I'm not really interested in, you know, being obsessed with the folks who are in office. I'd rather be obsessed with the policies they're pushing and some of the real challenges that they are taking head on. And so I took a, just sort of on the whim, I took a economics course and realized that the way markets worked, the way that you know, a lot of the conversation around psychology and how we make decisions every day that drive the economy really interested in me. And I didn't realize that until I took a micro and macroeconomics course. And so I actually ended up changing my major to the very simple major that you mentioned earlier, Clegg. Very political, very wonky, and very interdisciplinary, which I think in a lot of ways foreshadowed the path that I'm on now, but I didn't realize it in the moment. But when I got these awards, I was sort of surprised, to be honest, because a lot of what I did was just more out of wanting to try something and and also having amazing mentors in my undergrad who gave me the opportunity to lead on different initiatives. And so the HER Campus Woman of the Year Award was actually the inaugural award um, during my senior year of college that had never been given out before. And I remember, you know, getting a notification that someone nominated me and then finding out that I won. And I was just in awe, to be honest, because I, in a lot of ways, was like, who nominated me and what are they nominating me for exactly? And then after finding out, realizing that I had essentially helped launch um, one of our community service learning programs in undergrad. And I think it was one of my first introductions to the power of really bringing different communities together and having experiences together that educate people on differences and see and allowing them to see the power in our differences and understanding what it means to come from a different community. And so, you know, being in Northwest in Washington, D.C., it is sort of a bubble. I mean, not too many people go to Tinleytown unless you attend American University. And I remember one of the first things that was said to me was, don't go to Southeast don't go to Northeast, it's pretty dangerous. While I highly doubt those are the things that are said now because the, you know, the district has changed a lot over the past several years, I thought that that was something that really stood out to me because I immediately thought, how are we living in this community? But then saying, don't go to these certain areas, right, where we're supposed to be a part of the community. And I didn't agree with it. And so a big part of the community service learning program was how do we take people who, you know, maybe have never been introduced to folks who don't look like them, who differ, who have different cultures and norms, and spend days um, in service learning projects, um, and then debriefing and having the hard conversations, the, the courageous conversations around what it means to enter a community and not only provide a service, but really start to understand that community and its needs. So I started that when I think when I was a sophomore, and then by my junior year and senior year of college, I was essentially running the program, the debriefs. I, you know, I had several different students who were working with the community service learning program and, and a lot of ways supervising them along with one of my great mentors, 
Megan Gaffney book. And so, yeah, a big part of it was the work that I did with that community service learning program. And then also having served as a freshman service experience leader and incorporating some of those big takeaways into how we onboarded the freshman class and getting them to do community service projects. So that was the Hurt Campus Woman of the Year Award. Um, I know that was a lot of the pieces to why I received that award, which was amazing. The other Harold Johnson Award, as you mentioned, is a university award given out every year. Uh, Two of my really close friends who I admire very much also got this award, and it's related to racial and social justice. Um, And during my time at AU, I think not only in doing the community service learning program, I also was able to start a movement that really focused on Black Lives Matter and what that means for college students at that time. I mean, it wasn't a common phrase, and it sort of popped up, and we found ourselves in the middle of I think dissecting that in an academic um, environment, figuring out what does that mean for the university that we are now, the university that we want to see in the future, and how do we instill some of the, in a lot of ways, traumatic things that were happening at that time and are still happening, to be frank, um, in society, um, into our curriculum, into the way we um, encourage conversations around some of those hard topics, and taking it a step further, and so meeting with deans, organizing freshmen, I remember being a senior and telling freshmen, like, look, I'm leaving. So how do we continue these hard conversations and dialogues that we feel will actually help the university propel and, you know, everything that it's trying to do to better serve every student that walks on campus. So that was the crux of the Harold Johnson Award. And I was so honored to get it, sit on stage and acknowledging that I was one part of everything that was done. And there were four other amazing women of color that I was able to work with, as well as additional folks who signed up for teams. And we were really organized. I mean, it was it was a lot of effort. One of the hardest things to this day that I think I did. And so um, that's why I got the awards. It was an incredible experience. I think seeing, you know, the fact that our academic um, curriculum has changed since then and some, being able to see the real fruits of your labor is really nice to look back on, you know, several years from graduating and say, oh, wow, we really made an impact. So yeah, those were the awards and um, those were the reasons why I received them. But again, it was definitely a communal effort and a lot of people supporting me and encouraging me to go on and a lot of great mentors on campus that I'm still to this day very grateful for. That's awesome. And uh, I believe while you were on campus, you were a member of Generation Progress's action team. And with that, you also hit upon another pretty hot topic right now, sexual assault, and basically helped get pledges online and at different events for an initiative against sexual assault at the White House. So how did all that come together? Yeah, Center for American Progress was one of the best experiences I had in D.C. I think really having a an experience and an opportunity to be a part of, as you mentioned, issues that I think at that time weren't, they're a lot more relevant now than they were when I was working on them. So I worked on the It's On Us sexual assault campaign, which was spearheaded by then vice president and current presidential candidate, Joe Biden, um, and then also worked on gun violence prevention. And I think both of those topics, while now they are very much highlighted in our news cycle, and I think our key priorities in the discourse about this upcoming presidential election, but also just generally, I think more locally across the country, it was something that uh, you know, I didn't plan it, obviously. I, I had applied to work there, got accepted, and was able to work with a pretty young staff that was running um, what was then Action Progress. 
in essentially organizing young people across this country around issues that were greatly affecting us. And I mean, I think as you see the people acknowledge that the the demographic of voters have shifted in age and ethnicity and all of these things, finally having the discourse center around real things that we weren't talking about, right, for previous generations. Like, I mean, a stat that always, I'm still in awe of, but I remember learning when I was at Center for American Progress is that, you know, our generation is more likely to die from a, a gun wound or being shot than a car accident. And how, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case, but that's unfortunately the country that we live in. And acknowledging that while it's hard also gives us the ability to address the actual problem, right? And acknowledging that this isn't just a one-off thing, it's occurring regularly. And until we actually acknowledge that, right, how can we create real public health solutions, real policy solutions around this issue if people are still only associating it with, you know, one person who might be uh, mentally unstable doing this? Well, yeah, that, that certainly is a part of the dialogue, but it's not the only piece. I think being able to combine all of those conversations and say this is a, a a newer I think issue in a lot of ways for um, the country and then also a lot more nuanced and layered than it had ever really been discussed and how it had been discussed I should say and the same thing with sexual assault I mean as more people are going to get higher education and as more women are becoming, right, the, some of the most educated demographics in this country, how are we addressing the, the shift in safety, the shift in the dialogue around, you know, making sure that all students are safe on and off campus? Certainly not easy. Like, these aren't light issues. You don't just walk up to someone and start talking about sexual assault and gun violence prevention. But I think a lot of the work that we did was helping the stigma, helping decrease the stigma around these issues so that people could feel empowered to host events, host dialogue. And I think one of the most beautiful things that I saw coming out of the It's On Us sexual assault campaign was the bystander piece and not just talking about the actual act, but how, how do we enable some of those actions every day by not saying anything, by not doing anything. And you saw fraternities stepping forward and saying, look, we're going to host an event as well. And we're going to talk about the role of bystanders in all of this, whether you're a man or a woman, right? Because sexual assault isn't just, you know, one gender. It's it's every gender. And so I think having to have those hard uh, discussions at a time where people weren't having them at a time where it was really hard to, I think, acknowledge how a lot of universities have put policies in place that didn't get to the heart of the issue because they're also worried about their image and things of that nature. It was it was an incredible experience. I mean, organizing young people who were my age, maybe a little bit older, even a little younger, somewhere in high school, and giving them toolkits to go out and plan events and think about actions, think about conversations they could host to help destigmatize these issues that are very real for this generation. I'm still in touch with Center for American Progress to this day. Um, after the Orlando shooting, they held a big conference in Baltimore. I think that was 
last year, I want to say, around this time last year, a little maybe May of last year, that focused on gun violence prevention. I mean, sadly, a lot of it was still the same dialogue around the NRA and how much power they have um, in Congress and the importance of the new, the rising electorate that are younger, that are experiencing these things firsthand and seeing 16, 17-year-olds from high school who had experienced these terrible, you know, experiences stepping forward and saying, we're not going to take it anymore. And so I think it's been, it was an amazing experience then. It's still amazing to be tapped into that network. It's something that I'm really passionate about. So yeah, I mean, at the at any cho- chance that I have to talk about it, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm always open to doing that because I think it's really important and it's a newer issue that our country is still trying to tackle, right? And figure out how do we actually solve this these two very layered um, issues and policy changes that uh, we've never really had to deal with in the same way before. Exactly. And it seems like as from the time when you were working on it to now, both of those factors have gotten a lot bigger in the press too, just in terms of the whole Me Too movement happened all after that. And it's been a good opportunity for people to kind of embrace talking about sexual assault, whether it's them experiencing it themselves or them seeing someone else go through it. And there's been a lot of people that have been called out for some of their behavior. And then on the other hand, with a gun violence, it still remains an issue. It's kind of sad to see that some of our society, people our age, have kind of gotten numb to the fact that, oh, there was another school shooting or, oh, there was another shooting. Just it's, it's so commonplace. And now even in corporate environments, you have to take the hide, run, fight, training where you kind of have to learn what to do if there is a shooter. So it's it's a new world and it is like things that need to be talked about and policies need to be made. So that's great that you're very deeply involved in those areas. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, I couldn't fathom before having this much attention being drawn to these issues. And I think it's great that in some ways, as much as it is unfortunate, uh, these issues have been raised to the top of priorities. And, you know, I think that was always our goal. You know, you can't talk about things if people aren't focused on them. And so, you know, while it, it certainly is unfortunate that these are the issues that exist, they do exist. And so a lot of our work was how do we heighten this? How do we bring this to the forefront of the conversation? And, you know, through, I think, the work of amazing advocates over the years, and then also unfortunate situations, right, that have been propelled in the media, we've seen a lot more attention drawn to them. And, you know, I think the work won't end anytime soon. It's definitely ongoing. I mean, the Me Too movement has permeated every industry. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, from government to nonprofit to tech, right? I I'm still like I am always in rooms with different industries and everyone is talking about it because it is a universal issue. You know, it is an issue that is so big in our country. And I think the fact that people are now acknowledging that is how we move forward. And so there's some excitement in that, despite, you know, the the other side of it being unfortunate. There's excitement to know or a lot of people are excited to know that people are there's a tension around it and people are thinking through real solutions across the board, no matter where you work, no matter what your industry is, no matter where you go to school, right? People are talking about it. So I think that's very important. Exactly. And having the conversation is the first step to get some work going and movement in the right direction. I wanted to kind of move on to after college, you went and joined the Kuro Fellows Program, which the Princeton Review has referred to as the ultimate challenge and experience 
that defines those who participate as the most talented in the field of public service. So that's a pretty big honor. That means you're, you know, one of the most talented people in the field of public service <laughs> after completing it. I believe it's a nine-month program that's postgraduate. So how did you yeah. get into that program and what did you do while you were in the program? Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I think Coro is has been and continues to be super instrumental to the person that I am, the work that I do, how I show up in every room that I walk into. Whether I intentionally think about Coro or not, it is something that's really shaped who I've become as a person. Coro is not an easy program to get into. It's it's pretty selective. It's been around for several, or I should say a few decades, and it is a national program. Um, there's several other cities that host fellows as well, New York City being the most competitive, obviously. <laughs> and you apply, there's an online application. From there, you're selected for something called Selection Day, and there's a whole uh, background uh, um, vetting process that I won't get into that Coro does to select people for Selection Day. And essentially, however many applications are submitted for New York, I'm talking specifically about the New York process, 36 people or finalists are chosen, and they are tasked with coming to New York City for a day-long interview, essentially. You don't really know what you're walking into in a lot of ways. You just know that you were selected amongst hundreds of applications and um, you were chosen to be at this day-long interview. I was fortunate enough to be selected right after spring break. So <laughs> that was a really interesting experience for me, just sort of going straight from, you know, relaxing, senior year of college to this pretty intensive all day interview and it was i mean it's it's a very what's the word i'm looking for it's it's a very uh intense process yeah i think intense is the right word in a in a good way in a lot of ways it, it challenges you to really think about how you show up a lot of it is looking at how people make decisions what they look like both working alone but with teams and i'm not able to actually go into the full description of the process because coro is pretty uh, um, you know, they've been around for a while now, and I think they really value the fact that their process is something that is kept within the coral tight-knit community. And I think it also allows for a fair selection process, right? Knowing that people don't know what the process is walking into it. No one's able to like prepare beforehand or look amazing because they knew what the day would consist of. And so as a as an alum that values the program, I don't normally get into the specifics, but it is a it is an intense close to 12 hour, maybe more um, a long day interview. And, you know, you leave and uh, you're not entirely sure. You don't find out on the spot if you're selected. You hear back a few weeks later. So I went through that process. Um, I remember actually opening the email that I got accepted while I was at Center for American Progress. And yeah, I was ecstatic. You know, I had went through this very intense, um, very challenging, but also very rewarding application process and opened up the email and was like, wow, I'm pretty honored to be selected for this program that thinking of it, the way I thought of it was if I was challenged that much in one day to grow, I can't imagine how much I'll grow over nine months through this program. And I think that's exactly what happened. So uh, you talked a little bit about the overview of the program. You know, it, it is essentially a nine-month program that allows you to 
think about public affairs, what it means to be a leader in public affairs. And Coral does that through six different placements and you work across various sectors and you're tasked with going to all of these different organizations, identifying a high level challenge or problem and solving it in a lot of ways in the time that you're there during your placement. And the expectations are high. You know, I think Coral has created a an awesome name for itself. And so people really know when a Coral fellow is in a room and you're expected to produce something that is that is very high level, that is essential, that is helpful for the organization that you're placed at. And you do that six times throughout your fellowship program. So, you know, it, it wasn't, um, it certainly wasn't an easy process. It was very challenging walking into organizations that you know nothing about and being tasked to solve problems that they have been struggling with for months, for years even, and handing them something or implementing something that they could actually find resourceful and useful for their organization. So that's sort of the programmatic piece. I think the additional layer to that is you're a part of a cohort. So it's you and 11 other individuals who you become really, really close with. I mean, you are dissecting what it means to be a leader with these 11 other people who in a lot of ways were chosen because they're also <laughs> seen as amazing leaders where they're coming from. So imagine throwing uh, 12 people who have been honored, you know, given all these awards, who are seen as real change makers um, at their universities, their jobs, wherever they're coming from, right, right before Coral, into a room and asking them to dissect leadership. As you'd imagine, there's a lot of things that come up um, in both good and challenging ways. And I think that was one of the most, I think, insightful experiences that I had during Coral is what does it mean to lead? How do we define leadership as a society? What does, what does leadership mean to me as a person? Like what does Shantae want to look at as it uh, relates to being a leader? How do I define that for myself? And then how do I implement things that actually push me in the way that I say I want to be challenged, right? Not just during Coro, but after Coro. And so you really dissect what it means for you, for your cohort, I think for New York specifically to be a leader, learning about leaders in different sectors, thinking about group decision-making processes, facilitating, moving people towards a decision. And all of those things are, I think, very valuable skills to have, but oftentimes you don't learn in undergrad, right? I don't, I don't think a lot of people take classes or courses that teach you how to facilitate a discussion, how to find key takeaways in a conversation to move a group along, even if they are in disagreement with one another, how to understand the lived experiences of different people. And so Coro, um, if you can't tell, was very invaluable, I think, to my growth and something that is still to this day a, a big piece of what I carry through my everyday decision-making, learning, thinking, problem-solving. And so, yeah, that was, that was the Coro Fellowship sort of in a nutshell. As it relates to my specific projects, I work for the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. I help them essentially think through key performance indicators, so KPIs, for their East Harlem Healthy Neighborhood Initiative. I worked with um, Forest City Ratner Companies, which is a real estate affordable housing developer, and thinking about how they um, are implementing their community benefit agreement, looking at average median income and the developments that they were currently in process with, or excuse me, developing at that time in Brooklyn. And yeah, it was, it was a, a 
these tasks that we were given were not small tasks. And I also worked with a union, a local union, thinking about how they currently facilitate campaigns, what they can be doing to galvanize their members better, and what are some of the key challenges they're facing as a union, as a sector, transportation, mobility changing, and what does that mean for the future of unions? And yeah, they were really, they were really challenging topics to dive into, but also very rewarding because you are in several different sectors learning the ins and outs and the opportunities. So yeah, that was Coral. I could probably talk for hours about Coral, so I won't do that, but it was incredible. I'm still extremely close to my cohort. I just celebrated two weddings this past month for my cohort members, and we're like family, and it's it's an incredible community of powerful people who are really challenged to think about problems across sectors that are layered, that are not easy to think through. So I'm very grateful for my core experience. And I guess like outside of what you learned and all the skills you got, you have that built-in network where, you know, you have the friendships, and then you also have people you can feed ideas off of and even learn about new opportunities and things like that. So that network's always a good benefit to have as well. Yeah, I mean, the Coral Network is super strong and a huge, I think a huge benefit to anyone who does the program. We did something called Leadership Breakfast, where essentially we go into a company or an organization and interview CEOs, executive directors, you know, elected officials and ask them really interesting and challenging questions about their leadership style, their career path, what they're looking forward to as they continue to grow as leaders and what it means to run a a huge organization that in a lot of ways determines the future of a city like New York. And so I think being able to hear from, you know, the CEO of IBM, um, the CEO for City Ratner Companies, the CEO of Industry City, you know, the city council speaker and uh, other city council members and really start to dissect, I think, a lot of the traits that you see in leaders across the city like New York. And I think that was, like I mentioned, invaluable. I mean, meeting those people, hearing their stories, um, asking them questions like, what is one thing you do every day to help propel you in your career? And being able able to hear that across various sectors was so was so helpful. I mean, I still look at my notes every now and then and go, you know, what is it about these people, right, that allow them to gain the amount of power that they have and, and how do they handle that power responsibly? How do they make decisions that they trust? And I think those are all real questions that anyone goes through or struggles with throughout their lifetime. And so very grateful to have had nine months to really dive into that and build a community and a network with powerful people like that. And then from there, you went to a strategic consulting firm at Capolino and Company. And there you've had a chance to work with entrepreneurs at companies like Urban Offsets, Industrial Organic, Smart Living, Project WAG. The dog walking app is pretty cool. And Lime, which I've, you know, limed around DC. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> so it's like some of the clients you've worked with. So what type of assistance or service did you provide as a strategic consultant to these clients? So yeah, as you mentioned, after Cora, I was recruited from Capolino Company, applied, interviewed, all that good stuff, and was essentially brought on to, in a lot of ways, a one-member team. <laughs> so our business strategy team here at Capolino essentially helps companies think through what it means to expand and grow in a new market like New York. I did not think I'd be doing the work that I, I'm doing now, but in a lot of ways, now that I've reflected on, I think, everything from studying economics and really understanding markets 
and also policy and um, communications, it makes a lot of sense that I do what I do now. Um, but you don't know that, right? When you're going through that chapter in your life. I um, yeah was onboarded to help us grow out our business strategy team. And so in a lot of ways, we transitioned not only from a or transition to not just a government relations firm, but also strategic consulting firm. We started to think about, you know, if you're a business either entering or growing in this market, New York is really complex. There's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of stakeholders. How do you think efficiently about your resources, about your time to really build out priorities as it relates to scaling a new product? or just a, a new business in this market. And so there's obviously the policy piece, which is sort of our expertise, um, looking at policy, looking at regulatory hurdles and saying, hey, this is something that could affect your business. Let's think about, you know, not only how you want to position yourself in this market, but what's your unique value proposition here? And how do we build champions, not only in government, so city agencies and elected officials, but also private stakeholders who have a lot of influence in what decisions get made in a city like New York as well as community groups and organizers and advocates. And, you know, I think the beauty about New York is while it's very complex, which can be quite the headache sometimes, it also is very inclusive, right? And a lot of people are involved in the decisions that are made here. And I think there is a lot of amazing things that happen because you, no matter who you are, you can influence the things that happen in a city like New York. And so when you're a business, you have to think about all those things. And we found that a lot of, I think, consulting services, but also just businesses aren't equipped to think through those complex processes. And because we work with for-profit, not-for-profit, government, big businesses, everyone from real estate to clean tech, you know, we have a huge amount of knowledge and understanding of how decisions get made here. And I think coming from Coro, being able to dive into all the sectors and how decisions got made or are made allowed me to be equipped to also help in that. So essentially what we do is um, help folks grow in this market and do that through helping them secure pilot projects, um, helping them uh, have access to or identifying procurement opportunities. Uh, New York City, I think this year actually has a fiscal budget of $93 billion. And so what makes New York City really unique is that most of the services provided to constituents and residents of New York City are actually provided through third-party vendors that apply or, excuse me, respond to requests for proposals through city agencies and offices. And so there's a huge business opportunity there, um, but there's also, I think, a, just generally a huge opportunity to be a part of how residents and constituents are served in a place like New York. And so we help folks access that. Um, we also help them mitigate risk. I think entering any market is can be scary, confusing. New York, again, very complicated. And so how do you think about all of the risk in addition to the opportunity? How do you build strategic partners? Um, how do you think about your social impact? And that's been something we've been really focused on is what does it mean to come here and, you know, not just come here and try to throw something into the market, but think about it as it relates to your own social responsibility and what it means to really partner with New York City to build out whatever it is that you want to, you know, launch or grow. And so we've been doing a lot of work to help people think about community here, understand community. And yeah, that's that's what I've been doing for a while now. I mean, to give you a, a I guess, more vivid example, we work with, as you mentioned, WAG, the dog walking app. Um, I think the gig economy is transforming every market and every place. And so 
I, you know, in a lot of ways, it's overwhelming for policymakers, I think for people, just everyday individuals to think about what the future of our economy looks like. And so, you know, while in a lot of ways, WAG is creating amazing jobs, right, for dog walkers, people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have had an option to create some money on the side, or even use this as a way to create income in the first place, there are real concerns, right, about changing a model that has been hyper-local to something that is focused on tech or thrives off of tech. And so I think there is inevitably a, a concern about what that means for not only jobs, but also for safety and security. And so um, when we started working with WAG, a lot of it was how do we educate people around their existing trust and safety protocols? How do we uh, think about what it means to be in this market? So helping them build out a local team here to actually be responsive to the needs and concerns of the community in New York City. Um, and then one of the most things I think um, I'm really proud of is myself and a colleague spearheaded a community impact program that um, essentially thought through what are the needs of rescue organizations, shelters, and just, I think, any animal organization in New York, and how do we create a community impact program that meets those needs. And so we launched the first community impact program for WAG here in New York based off of conversations we had with folks. I think, you know, you're probably very familiar with the fact that historically corporate social responsibility has been just dishing out a lot of money to organizations that oftentimes have nothing to do with the business model of a company. Um, and so we've been really focused on, you know, if you're a dog walking app, well, yeah, sure. I'm, well, I'm sure, you know, a healthcare nonprofit would appreciate your, your dollars. It probably makes a lot more sense for you to invest and actually support some of the users of your platform and people who, you know, have concerns about them and talking with them and doing focus groups and better understanding their needs. So that's exactly what we did and helped them build partnerships with some of the local community organizations here while also giving back in a real way to some of the people or um, I should say executive directors and organizations that are doing great work. I mean, one of them, I won't say the name, but they were essentially helping homeless individuals keep their pets. Um, because a lot of times, right, they're not allowed to go into a shelter with their pets, but their pets mean so much to them. And I think in a lot of ways are very much a, a symbol of inspiration. And so they put together an entire organization and program that helps identify some of the most vulnerable um, homeless individuals in New York City. So elderly, some youth, people who own pets but don't necessarily right, have um, the most support, whether that be financial or um, community support. And being able to support an organization like that was, I, I think, just a, an amazing experience, not only for WAG, but for the team here that was working on it. So that's that's one example of, you know, working with, I think, a, an, an innovative tech company that sometimes, you know, that I think people love the idea of disruption in the tech community. And I love it too. But uh, one thing that we've been focused a lot on and helping our clients think, think about is what are the unintended consequences? How do you mitigate them? And how do you think about the communities where eventually or already your your tech is operating and what are the what's the impact both good and bad that it's having and how do you think about it holistically, right? So yeah, that's what I do and, and that's just an example of some of the work that we've done. That sounds like you basically have taken what you did yourself in the public service sector and you're essentially helping companies do that too. That's that's pretty cool that you're leveraging the experience that you got from college and CODA and basically putting it into your full-time job as well. 
I know we're running out of time, so I want to kind of switch gears really quick and talk about your work with the Coda Alliance, where you're on the board. Yeah. Um, so the Coda Alliance, I've been on the board now for almost two years, actually. And essentially, our long-term vision is to build a world center for women here in New York, focused on nonprofits, NGOs, and social enterprises that are working towards gender equity. The founder, Yana, is an amazing woman. She was previously an OBGYN and um, essentially realized that there weren't a lot of places for nonprofits and NGOs who are specifically focused on gender equity, both in New York, outside of New York, to convene outside of the UN. You know, the UN hosts amazing forums and conversations around gender equity, but a lot of nonprofits outside out of the UN can't afford spaces in New York City because if you haven't heard, New York City is not the most cheap place for rent or for any space. And so, um, yeah, our long-term vision is to build a world center. Right now, we operate out of the Center for Social Innovation, which is another incredible space that focuses on social enterprises that are doing a variety of different things to improve New York City, I think the country and also the globe, everything from sustainability to, you know, helping folks think through organizations change management. And we, you know, ultimately want to create a center that is specifically focused on international and um, New York-based nonprofits that are working towards gender equity. And so we've been working towards that for a while, started a capital campaign several months ago. And I think for me, gender equity has always been a huge piece of what I care about. I think that so many of the issues that we experience would be a lot better if women had the same access to resources, opportunity, and just overall support as men and the ability to move up, um, you know, as it relates to economic mobility. And so I'm really passionate about CODA. I think it's an amazing mission. I had the opportunity of working with awesome people, everyone from, you know, folks who are commentators on MSNBC to people who negotiated conflict resolution for some of the, the, the biggest wars in this um, lifetime. And so being able to work with people who are so passionate, so intelligent, so eager is a huge honor of mine. And um, yeah, I think CODA is an awesome mission. I think you see a lot of co-working spaces, event spaces popping up, um, but none of them are really geared towards meeting the needs of organizations, I think, who need it the most um, and who don't have as much money, but are working to build a better world for women. And so, yeah, that's what I do at CODA. And I completely support that mission just because in today's day and age, there is the whole gender wage gap, but it goes past that into businesses too. So if you look at the startup world, I believe Boston Consulting Group had done a study where they found that only 3% of all venture capital in the U.S. goes towards women-owned businesses. And if you actually look at the dollar-to-dollar comparison of funding to the revenue produced, women businesses are actually producing double the re- revenue based on how much money they raise as male-owned businesses. And despite that fact, they're only getting 3% of the venture capital funding. So there is a big need for that. And that is a really powerful mission. So that's great that you've been involved with that. Thank you. I totally agree. We have an entire minority woman-owned business enterprise practice area that looks at that. Um, Essentially, the city and the state here in New York realized, I would say, almost a decade ago that pretty much all of the procurement, so the $93 billion budget I mentioned, was going to big businesses that were owned by mostly white men in one of the most diverse cities in the country and um, decided that that wasn't okay. (laughs) And so they started implementing a certification, the Minority Woman-Owned Business Enterprise Certification. And so we do have a a practice area run by um, an amazing colleague of mine who uh, essentially helps 
minority and women-owned businesses get certified and access that that huge pot of money that I mentioned earlier and some of the opportunities, right, coming out of the city and state. I specifically have worked with women founders and women who are leaders at tech companies, so I can speak specifically to that. So even though women are still not getting even close to, right, the amount of funding that men are getting, they're still building their businesses faster, better, more sustainable. And I think that's like a huge testament to what we're not even tapping into yet. Imagine if we were giving women even 50% of the VC money that's out there. We're not even close to being there. And so I think it's a huge, huge opportunity, but also right now, right, a huge uh, missed opportunity. So, you know, while it's certainly a problem, I think I get excited by VCs like Arlen Hamilton at Backstage Capital who have identified underserved founders and are realizing that it's not just the right thing to do, it's actually the smart thing to do as it relates to businesses. And so moving the dialogue from, oh, we need to make sure that, you know, this is equal as we should. That's certainly very, very important. And obviously where I come from in this, but from a business perspective, it also just makes more sense. And I think now that people are realizing that, I mean, everyone's coming out with reports. I mean, Bumble even is, you know, doing a, a fun with Serena Williams. I think it's so hard not to acknowledge, right, that women are a, we're, we're some of the strongest consumers, yet the people who are creating products don't reflect us, don't reflect our needs, our wants, our desires. And for any business, that's a missed opportunity. And so I've, I've had the opportunity and the privilege of working with innovative women founders, innovative women who are running startups and growth stage ventures and are doing it really well and have amazing ideas. And a lot of times they're like, I just need more money. I need more money to stay my business. I need more money to do what I'm doing. And that's really the big issue. The ideas are out there. The revenue models are out there. The understanding of, you know, customers and products are out there, but people can't do anything without money. It's so hard to not just start a business, but sustain a business without money. So I'm excited that not only in my, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, volunteer opportunities, but also in my everyday work, I get to address uh, some of those issues that are really key. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge problem also a huge opportunity. And I think it's awesome that now it's being reframed as that. Like it's not just a challenge and a problem, but it's a great opportunity for people to tackle. And you see women doing that. You see a lot more women funders, a lot more people speaking out, even men, right? Stepping up to the plate and saying, this makes no sense, like across the board, right? And so that that really excites me. And I'm happy that you're seeing the, the dialogue change there. Exactly. It's great to see how much you've grown your career and gotten into your passion field. The way you speak, I could see you running for government and <laughs> doing all that one day. So that's, it's, it's really inspiring. And it's good to see people our age group actually being involved and caring about the issues rather than being passive. Yeah, I've been asked more times than I can count to run for office. Um, I think at this point, I'm not writing it off. Like two years ago, I would have been like, no, I'm too shy. I don't really like the limelight, which I think has always been really funny. So I sort of just fell into it. But I mean, at this point, it's like, like you said, I, for me, it's challenging myself to be out of my comfort zone. And I'm like, if you can see amazing folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez running and so many of my other fellow peers who are also women and women of color, it's like, how can we not do something? So I am at the point where I'm like, not now, but maybe sometime in the near future, I could see myself running for office, but no rush, no rush on my end. Um, but I've been asked so many times and everyone's like, please run, please run. But, you know, there's a lot of different layers there. And, you know, running a campaign is 
a whole beast that I, you know, know about from the being, you know, in the sort of in the back end and helping folks on their campaigns. But I think to be at the forefront is a whole nother challenge. So it's not something I'm writing off, but definitely something that I'm like, it does still feel a little, you know, overwhelming if I'm being honest, but also exciting. So I think that's, that's, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> nice. You, you got time. I want to ask you the question I close out all my interviews with. What would you say has been your personal mantra or a quote that's driven you to where you've gotten in your career? Yeah, I think I, one, I love that that's sort of how you end off your podcast and that's the theme of your podcast. I think mine hasn't really changed for a while now. It was something that I came across when I was younger. <laughs> Not that I'm very old now, but I think um, it's something I've carried with me. And it's a quote from Marianne Williamson. And um, it's essentially, uh, this is the quote, your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. And yeah, you know, it's a, it's a longer quote, but those are the, the few verses that I've you know, remember and sort of carry with me every day. And it's a constant reminder. I think being a young woman has, for me, having the opportunity, the resources, the support that I've had, I'm so grateful for. And so in a lot of ways, it means so much to me to remember that quote and tell myself, right, that I, if I feel something, if I think something, I should share it. And there's, there's so much value in me sharing it. I think not only I, I see it in my, you know, consulting role where, you know, I have an idea and, you know, no one else would have thought of it. And, you know, while I think it's important to stay humble, right, and not think you know everything and acknowledging that I still have a lot to learn, I think it's also beautiful to say, I also add a lot of value here. And I think being a young woman of color, that's not always something that, that we stand in all the time and that we're taught. And so I think it's something that quote for me is something that I really try to live by and saying that I'm not only doing myself a uh, disservice if I don't speak up, I'm doing everyone in the room a disservice because I add value here and it's important for me to share what I have to say. And so, um, yeah, I think like it's so true. I, there's nothing enlightened about shrinking yourself. If you have light, if you have value, which we all do, you should share it. And so stepping into that power, stepping into that ability of mine has been, I think, something really powerful and kind of new, if I'm being honest. Like, I think it's something that I um, am excited that I'm getting better at and feel a lot more comfortable standing in front of a room, speaking out, running things, facilitating. And it's something I try to live by. I think it's, it's super important as a woman, as a woman of color. And so, yeah, that's, that's my mantra. And I think that fits perfectly with what you said, how your grandma told you, if you see something that needs to change, use your voice and make it happen. It kind of goes full circle to what you said you were brought up with. So that's really cool that it's actually flown all the way throughout your life to where you are today. Thank you for coming out and chatting with our audience. Do you want to promote your social media, where people can find you and learn more about yourself and what you do? Sure. Yeah, my friends are joking, like, say you're becoming an influencer. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm on Twitter, I'll probably be tweeting about everything from like woman founders to policy to clean tech. Uh, so that's sort of my jam. <laughs> um, but I'm on Twitter at Shante, uh, C-H-A-N-T-E underscore Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. Um, you can follow me on Instagram as well at Tay underscore Amo, T-A-E underscore A-M-O. Um, yeah, and I think that's 
that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook too, but um, if you want to see some great content or just me sharing my opinion, that's what that means. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks everyone for joining us on today's podcast. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Thank you.